You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Uh, I have a very special guest today. A, a bit of background, however, every day more than 600 people in Canada are diagnosed with cancer and more than 200 die from it. It's actually quite a bit more than I thought. So it is very likely that all of us in some way or another are exposed to patients who have cancer, family members. So it's very important that both ourselves as healthcare practitioners, but also the general public has a good idea about this horrible disease. So I'm very honored to have Dr. David J. Stewart on the podcast today. Dr. Stewart is a veteran medical oncologist with over 40 years of experience in the field as both a doctor, a researcher, and a professor in Canada and the United States, which is good because we can have the percept both perceptions of, of how it works in, in those two countries. He's also a professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa. And finally, and most importantly, he's the author of A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, which I, sh- I read part of it, and I think it's an excellent book. I um, That's one of the reasons I have David on the podcast, because it's, it's excellent, both for primary care physicians, patients, and the way it's written is almost like a um, resource. And we'll talk a bit about the structure because I thought it was really interesting. But, but David, can you tell me what inspired you to write this book? And uh, well, place? for uh, yeah, so my patients have always told me that the worst thing of all is uncertainty. Uh, if they uh, if they would rather have bad news than no news, uh, because uh, with uncertainty, it's very difficult to deal with that. Whereas if they get bad news, at least then they can figure out what they have to do to deal with it. And uh, and the more information I would give them. Uh, the more grateful that they would be. I mean, some find a lot of information terrifying or very scary, but uh, ultimately most of them find that it really is very, very helpful to have information. So uh, so I've been, I've been telling my wife for 20 years I was going to write the book and I finally got around to doing it. So that was the one reason. Uh, the other reason was that uh, the systems issues uh, uh, for a number of years have also been publishing on uh, things that uh, interfere with access to effective new drugs or medical care or cancer care. And, uh, and it was as if uh, nobody was really listening to, uh, to any of it. So it was really to try to get out the message uh, that there are some major systems issues that uh, we can deal with it, that could be solved, but we need to deal with it. And uh, just to make um, uh, access to effective new drugs better, uh, access to cancer care overall better. That's great. And just to, to double back a bit on the patient uncertainty, I, I do find when unfortunately I have to tell a patient I have cancer, really everything I tell them after gets lost, right? Yeah. It's it's just it's such it's such a shock. And then it's so it's nice to have something written because then you can go back to it and and understand it. What I really like about the book, actually, and the way you structured it is that you start with a primer. And the primer it, it's it's very well written. I think again, I'm not a patient, right? I'm a doctor, so there's always the bias, but I think it's written in plain language for patients to understand. And then you have the second part, which is the deep dive, as you call it, which is more technical. But still, I did you write the second part for doctors or did you try to write both parts for patients? I'm, I'm curious. When uh, you... So, uh, so I, I wrote the second part so it could be useful for uh, any healthcare provider who is not uh, in oncology. Uh, but also mm-hmm. I tried to make it understandable by uh, for patients and to try to accomplish that. Uh, the two major editors of the book were my wife, who's an interior decorator, and my stepdaughter, who's a an elementary school teacher. Uh, so, uh, so they would tell me any place that 
uh, including in the further details section that uh, uh, was uh, was worded in a way that could not be understood by somebody uh, with a uh, who did not have a medical background. That that's such a good idea because again we're we're so lost in our heads and sometimes I talk to people who are not in medicine they're looking at me what are you what are you talking about but to me it makes sense. But yeah, I, I and again, I didn't read the whole book. I read a couple of chapters, which I want to talk about if that's all right. And it was so understandable. And um, I might borrow some of the phrases you use, if you don't mind, because they're very well written. Um, how, I wonder, how long did it take you? Because it, it's, it's a long book. Uh, it's about 300 pages, I think, with 100 pages of references. But how long did the process take? I know you're very, you must be a very busy physician. You're, do, you're doing a lot of things, but just curious, how, how did it, how long did it take for this whole thing to happen? So it took uh, me three years to write it. So okay. it would take uh, two days to do the first draft of each chapter, and then three months to go through and uh, and polish it and get all the references and uh, and uh, correct everything. So, but about three years overall. Okay. So so uh, so three years. Yeah, that that that's a long time. But I'm assuming you had to do it on your free time, which yep. which is. Do, do you, I'm curious because um, I talk to writers but about their process but is it something that you tend to go at it every day a little bit or do you have those three or four days where you write a lot or how, how what's your process like uh, so that uh, some of both so mm-hmm. i mean there were long stretches where i could not do anything on it at all because there were too many other things going on right uh, but um, uh, so weekends i would usually uh, uh, spend uh, about four or five hours each morning writing and then uh, go outside and uh, do something out in the bush for the afternoon just to right. uh, to relax. So, and also same thing with vacation. So uh, a bit of time each morning uh, working on it, and then uh, a lot of time in the afternoon and other things. Thank, thank you, thank you for sharing that. Because sometimes people have questions about how do you write a book. Well, it's possible, but you just have to have a process <laughs> and and patience. So I, I do, given that I'm we're, we're, I'm uh, in primary care. I do want to talk a bit about screening. That's okay. So you have a whole chapter on screening, and that's that's our bread and butter as primary care physicians. Um, and there's some issues with screening, obviously. So I, I do want to ask first the the future question. Uh, currently, we mainly screen for four cancers. That's the main thing: prostate, breast. Although prostate is a question mark, right? And you do explain that as well: breast, colon, and cervical cancer. So, do you foresee in the future? maybe more cancers being added to the screening list? Or is it? Or are those the four that are the most effective to screen for? No, those are just the, the four that the, the major research has been done. Uh, that, uh, But people tend to look for opportunities. For example, lung has been added recently with low-dose can screening. Uh, that does make a difference. But I think the future uh, could revolutionize everything because I think uh, in the not-too-distant future, it'll be a blood test that will be relevant right. to all cancers. And uh, so that um, uh, it uh, may be looking for something like uh, DNA methylation patterns uh, that are characteristics of, of cancers and, and different cancers will have different DNA methylation patterns. Uh, or also it can be amplifications that uh, uh, increase gene copy number that, uh, uh, that uh, could be uh, uh, indicative that there's a cancer. Uh, I used to think it would be screening for mutations, so, so mm-hmm. uh, cancer-specific mutations. But then, to my great surprise, I found out that uh, uh, that there are many uh, uh, benign processes that have cancer-type mutations. Uh, for example, the BRAF mutation is present in about fifty um, percent uh, of malignant melanomas, but okay. present in eighty percent of some benign uh, uh, moles. So, uh, okay. so that just finding the mutations is not going to be enough. Right. So there, there's, uh, as any test you have, you post positives and, and, and you post negatives. 
I'm curious, and you may not have an opinion on this because you mentioned melanoma, but I've I've been hearing people talking about AI applications where you can take a picture of of the melanoma, of I should say of the lesion, and they can scan and give you an idea whether it's abnormal or not. What do you what are your thoughts on that? If you have any, I think there's a lot of potential applications of AI in the future, uh, so that that uh, so that uh, you just um, feed a whole bunch of images of um, uh, into a computer that uh, and and what, with what they are, and pretty soon the computer can figure out um, then what, from the next lesion what it is. And it's the same with um, with scans. So like um, uh, whether the, the scans in the future will will take the place of radiologists in doing a lot of the, sc- uh, the screening right. and figuring out whether something is a malignancy or not. Yeah, I, I've read that. And uh, I was thinking because when I was a resident, they talked about the dermatoscopy, I believe, where you, you, you zoom into the lesion and certain things make it. I was thinking, could this be done yep. by a computer? So yep. it, it might be coming then. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So there's no question that uh, there's going to be at least some applications for that. And uh, but um, uh, but um, it's we still have a piece to go, but uh, there's been a lot of very interesting information on that. Oh, that's excellent. So, in terms of the blood work, I want to understand this correctly. So, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that in term that what might be coming in is uh, a patient does some blood work and then you run for you know gene methylation patterns or damages, and then you can say, Well, this is your risk, you might have cancer, or this is your risk, you have this cancer. And that can make it to a diagnosis. You can diagnose that. So you screen with that, and then you can diagnose if the risk is elevated. That's right. So it may, That's it may amazing. say both that a patient may have a cancer and also potentially the kind of cancer, so you know what organ to look at. And so that's what may open it up to a, a whole bunch of additional sites besides the, the typical ones that we currently screen for. Um, Ten years away? <laughs> I know you can't so, predict. <laughs> yeah, so so they can't predict. Uh, I always tell people, though, about uh, the head of our department when I was doing my fellowship at MJ Anderson in the mm-hmm. uh, 1976, uh, uh, Dr. Emil J. who who's the most brilliant uh, person I've met, uh, but he had Freyrich's laws. And one of Freyrich's laws was that the only people who come close to predicting the future are the science, the science fiction writers, and they always underpredict rather than overpredict. So if you can imagine it, then there's at least a possibility you can do it. And when he told us that, none of us thought we'd be walking around with phones in our pockets or that we would no longer need a map because a computer in a car would be talking to a satellite. So if you can imagine it, then it, uh, it may happen. And, uh, and it, uh, sometimes some things will take a lot longer than what we hoped, but some will happen uh, uh, unexpectedly quickly. Yeah, no, I was just talking to my mother, who's who's an artist, and the the whole AI art came out of nowhere. You can't, you yeah. can't, you're right. You can't. Sometimes you can't predict what's going to come out, yeah. but it does, and it's uh, it's it's amazing. I, I I do. I'm curious about a more specific screening example because um, so I practice mostly in Quebec, and they're pushing for H for specifically for cervical cancer. They want to switch to to testing the HPV. The, yep. the high risk HPV, which is a much easier test, right? I mean, theoretically, apparently, you can even have the patient do it. Or I, I don't know if we're heading that way, but it's easier, and I'm assuming maybe less costly to to look at. What do you, What are your thoughts about replacing the the traditional pap test with that? Do you have any opinion on that? Uh, so I know that some of the uh, some of the early data are very positive, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in fact, I I don't even know for sure. Uh, how close it might be to replacing it, but uh, some of the early data are very positive. Okay. All right, so so there there's some hope because I, I know, and especially in, in in Quebec, I had to start running pap 
uh, pap clinics because no, there's not enough family doctors, right? Which I want to talk about at the end, a bit about the issues with screening in Canada. I'm curious, you've worked in the States for quite a while, and I don't know the system very well. You hear things, but it's all hearsay, and, and I, I don't believe it until I talk to somebody who's experienced it. How does screening work in the U.S.? Because uh, my understanding is the primary care physician is not such a big thing in the U.S., unless I'm wrong. How, how do people get screened for cancer? Yeah, so in fact, actually, uh, I don't even know for sure the details about how right. they do. Uh, I do know that uh, the, the the rates of screening are actually pretty high in the United States. They're, they're about the same as they are in Canada. Uh, so that, and one of the things in the United States, interesting, okay. Uh, so one of the, and one of the things in the United States is that there's shorter family doctors. They've got far fewer family doctors per unit population, but they got far more specialists. And so that a lot of the primary care is actually done by uh, by general internists. Uh, so that uh, uh, so that that's partly how they uh, get around it. And uh, so different people have their they may have their own pulmonologist. They may not have a family doctor, but they may have their own pulmonologist, or respirologist, or something like that. Uh, so that uh, so that uh, it's just set up differently uh, with different responsibilities. But it works because obviously their screening rates. Their the right? screening rates appear to be uh, pretty pretty okay. Good. Interesting, interesting thing. So that's sort of the screening question. The other c- section I really liked again f- because I'm a primary care physician is is the harmful myths. You have a whole a chapter on a lot of the myths in uh, that we have about treatment of cancer, right? And then I was reading some of them like, oh, I feel stupid. You know, I, okay, I believe this, right? So I would ask you, what do you, because for our listeners here, what do you think is the most, the one myth you want to dispel from primary care physicians about cancer and cancer treatment? What, what do you think is the most harmful right now in terms of myth? Uh, so for primary care physicians, uh, uh, the uh, uh, there's really... Can't think of one for primary care physicians. Uh, sure. and there, there are certainly major ones in, among oncologists that are okay. right. So, so the, the big one among oncologists that's a big problem is uh, the belief that the blood-brain barrier is magic and that it keeps uh, chemotherapy out of uh, tumors in the brain. Uh, so that um, so that's the most firmly entrenched myth in oncology. Uh, but of course, the uh, the blood-brain barrier is largely disrupted, and that's why if you do a, a CAT scan or an MRI of the brain. Uh, the contrast goes in there, and you see it just because the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. Right, uh, and and um, yeah. and, uh, and also that's why there's a team around it is because right. the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. Uh, and yet, um, the uh, uh, for many clinical trials, patients with brain metastases are excluded because it's said that uh, the treatment won't work. But the response rate to uh, systemic treatments for brain metastases is just about as high as it is for tumors outside the brain. Uh, and uh, I've, my early uh, research was on. I'd give uh, consenting patients low non-toxic dose of chemotherapy mm-hmm. before they went to the operating room to have a brain tumor removed. I go into the operating room, then the surgeon would give me a piece of it, and then I take it back to the lab and measure the concentration. And even when very low, only low concentrations were achieved in the normal nervous system, very high concentrations would be achieved in tumors of the brain. Um, and wow. also, p- people would say, well, uh, but uh, patients with brain metastases, uh, their life expectancy is shorter than, uh, than uh, patients without brain metastases. And that must be the blood-brain barrier. Uh, only problem is that the uh, life expectancy with brain metastases is exactly the same as with liver metastases or bone metastases or genome metastases or subcutaneous metastases. And uh, the big problem is they compare it to, if you compare it to all patients with metastatic disease, but uh, uh, not brain, uh, that includes a large proportion of patients who have only lung metastases and pleural and, uh, and uh, pericardial metastases. And their prognosis is much, much better. 
but they do, but people would say, well, look uh, how bad rheumatizers are, but it's really uh, what we call M1C disease. Um, so metastatic disease outside of the thorax has a much worse prognosis, but uh, it's not due to the blood-brain barrier, it's just due to uh, the metastatic pattern and the fact that uh, uh, that uh, you have different types of tumor cells that metastasize outside the thorax compared to inside the thorax. Yeah. This, has, this has major problems because it limits the a patient accrual on clinical trials because they're excluded, or much worse, the uh, the patient may be considered eligible if you get if you radiate the tumor in the brain and then they wait four weeks and you confirm that the tumor in the brain is stable, then you can put them on. But meanwhile, the patient has crashed because of uh, the untreated uh, liver metastases and bone metastases, and so they deteriorate rapidly because that, that's not being treated. Uh, just while you're trying to treat small asymptomatic brain metastases, it would have done fine with systemic therapy. Uh, so, and uh, if with a patient with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, uh, if you don't get them started on systemic therapy, four uh, percent of remaining patients die with each passing week that you do not start treatment. Uh, and so, while you're muddling along trying to make them eligible for a clinical trial, uh, they will they, they will deteriorate to the point that they they can't be treated with anything. So this is very harmful for, in many different ways. Uh, this uh, this myth that uh, that uh, that the blood-brain barrier uh, should uh, should change the type of uh, systemic treatment we use. It's it's interesting because again, coming from biochemistry and all the physiology I took, yeah, the blood-brain barrier is supposed to be this impenetrable yeah. wall, but. Wow, and and, yeah. and it is for the normal nervous system, right. but the but the blood vessels in the in the tumor are not normal. And this all started actually when I was very early in my career. I was quite yeah. uh, interested in uh, in uh, neuro oncology, and so I, I I went to a bunch of neuro oncology meetings, and I'd be the only medical oncologist there. Everybody else would be neurologists and neurosurgeons and basic scientists. And the theme of the meeting would be how all other cancers were highly curable with chemotherapy, except for brain tumors and brain metastases. And they were uh, they were incurable because of the blood-brain barrier, and we had to solve the blood-brain barrier. The only problem is that the basic premise was not correct uh, uh, because uh, there were a few a, a few tumors that we could cure, uh, but uh, all the common cancers we could not cure. Uh, so it was not the blood-brain barrier; it was just uh, intrinsic resistance mechanisms. And do do you do you feel this myth is slowly? Fading away, or there's a lot of pushback against. Uh, well, so so I'll, I'll go to a meeting, and somebody will comment mm-hmm. about the drug co- across the blood-brain barrier, and I'll get up and I'll say, yes, but the tra- concentrations uh, that are achieved in brain tumors are very high, and uh, they they can uh, respond, and, and we shouldn't be uh, paying attention to this. And everybody will say, yeah, we we all know that, we all know that. But then the next speaker after that would again be talking about the importance of the blood-brain right. barrier. Uh, so uh, it's sort of like uh, I use the analogy of the Celtic cross. Are you, are you familiar with the Celtic cross? I I, th- I can imagine it, but no. And so it's a cross with a circle uh, on and the cross from Ireland, and uh, that it exists because when Saint Patrick went to convert uh, the Irish to Christianity, they uh, worshipped the sun god, and they uh, they agreed to convert as long as they could also keep their sun god. So the blood brain barrier is the oncology sun god. Uh, that uh, so that uh, we'll give it up as long as we don't really have to give it up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that that that's really interesting. I you know it's certainly one of the things that really surprised me, and uh, I, it, that's why this book is important because you have a couple of there. It's not the only one, but this one is quite harmful, as you're saying, because it, it's limiting uh, studies, but it's also limiting patients' ability to be treated. Um, I do want to sort of move on to some of the treatments, and I think that chapter is excellent. 
But I keep hearing, I want to know if this is hype or not. I keep hearing about this personalized cancer medicine, right? So my understanding, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you look at the genes, your genes and the, the genes of your cancer cells. Yeah. And then they use that to figure out specific treatment. But, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of hype with this personalized medicine that hasn't materialized that much in terms of what I see. But what, what are your thoughts about, about that specific facet of, of cancer care? Is that something that's happening already? Yeah, it's something that's happening. Yeah. And it's incredibly important for some cancers. Uh, so the, the, the problem is that uh, uh, because it started looking very positive early on, it was then the great hope was that it applied to everything. And then there's some cancers that so far it does not apply to. Uh, but for adenocarcinoma in the lung, it is a key. It is absolutely key uh, because if, um, if we uh, do next generation sequencing, uh, and uh, then if we find a, uh, an EGFR mutation, uh, then there are medications we can use that are much more effective than chemotherapy and much less toxic than chemotherapy. Or if we find an ALK fusion gene or a RET fusion gene, uh, or there's a whole bunch of uh, driving mutations. Uh, that um, that uh, are very, very important. Uh, and we hope we'd find the same thing in squamous cell lung cancer and, and small cell lung cancer, but we haven't. Uh, right. So that uh, the, so personalized therapy is incredibly important with adenocarcinoma in the lung and a few other things like malignant melanoma, where 50% of them have a BRAF mutation. Uh, and then uh, the BRAF inhibitors can be very important. Uh, or in uh, gastrointestinal stromal tumors where they have a, a CKIT mutation. Uh, that's very, very important. Uh, but um, uh, to a certain extent in breast cancer, but only like if it's got uh, if they've got a uh, BRCA one or BRCA two mutation, right. uh, then uh, then PARP inhibitors can be very good. And also with ovarian cancer, uh, where PARP inhibitors can be very good if there's a, a BRCA one or BRCA two mutation. Uh, but um, uh, for for the breast cancers that uh, do not have that, uh, if there's uh, an estrogen receptor positive, then you use hormonal therapy. So a certain, to a certain extent, it's personalized. So, so far in many cancers, it has not really uh, played out big time, but in some cancers, it's very, very important. Uh, but the, the, but the, we know from what happened with, the, with adenocarcinoma lung that right now there may not be anything in, uh, in squamous cell lung cancer, uh, but that could suddenly change next year that somebody just making realization about uh, uh, what we need to do differently to, uh, to target uh, very specific uh, uh, groups of patients with squamous cell lung cancer. So is that going to happen next year or is it going to be 20 years from now? Can't say. Uh, we, we do know that, uh, uh, that uh, these things can happen very suddenly and unexpectedly. Curious, maybe you don't know this by, by heart, but for ovarian cancer, if you, if you have the, the mutation, the BRCA mutation, and it, compared to if you don't have it, like what are the success rates uh, so as far as curing it, uh, it's right. probably not it's still not curable. Okay. Uh, but the but the uh, platinum-based chemotherapy uh, works uh, substantially uh, better uh, if there's a uh, one of these uh, DNA repair uh, uh, things because then the cancer cell cannot repair the damage done by the chemotherapy, and so those patients will will respond a lot better to chemotherapy. But also with the PARP inhibitors, uh, a fairly high proportion of patients will have uh, tumor shrinkage. Uh, whether it's, um, okay. it's uh, uh, whether it's uh, uh, ovarian cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer that has a uh, a BRCA mutation, prostate cancer also again yeah. it, 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 my ignorance is so if a prostate cancer you have a BRCA mutation you can use estrogen based uh, so so that, uh, overall with prostate cancer you right. know, hormonal therapy is very very important anti androgens 
but also in some cases, uh, the uh, uh, things like PARP inhibitors can also be effective if there's a driving uh, PARP mutation that led to the development of the cancer in the first place. And it decreases rates of having, for prostate cancer, it decreases rates of having to do surgery, I, I, I assume, right? Uh, so that, uh, so that uh, uh, typically, if the cancer is localized, right. uh, whether there's a PRAC mutation or not, you would do surgery or radiotherapy to try to uh, to treat it. Okay. Uh, if you felt that that patient was somebody who needed treatment for the prostate cancer, one of the very interesting things with prostate cancer, some of them are very indolent, uh, so that uh, some of them will just be observed, and some of them can be observed for, for quite prolonged periods of time right. without requiring treatment. But if you develop metastatic disease, uh, and uh, so that um, if uh, uh, if you have a, a mutation like that, then it can impact the type of treatment that uh, you can use for it. That, that's that's excellent. I'm I'm really glad to hear that it's not all hype. I mean, the issue is not all cancers. Obviously, it doesn't work for all cancers, but it sounds like for some, it's very well. It's effective. It's a lot more effective. Yeah. Let's say and, that. And, and what I say about hype is very important because what tends to happen is that we make an observation, we get very excited, and we think it's going to apply everywhere, and then it doesn't. So then people get very very negative and say, well, it doesn't work. Right. But then we come back to the middle and we find out, yes, there are some places that it works and it works very, very well and other places that, uh, that it doesn't. And, and that's where we need to end up um, in that place uh, where, where we've got evidence that, of where it works and, and use it in that place. It's one extreme or the other. It's either works for everything or for or nothing. Yeah, but... Well, well it's, it's like back when I started my oncology training back in the 1970s. Uh, immunotherapy was going to cure everything. And there was a tremendous amount of right. hype about that. And then it ended up uh, being almost nothing. So for many years, I told the trainees that uh, that immunotherapy has been about to cure cancer for the past 50 years. And I was very, very negative about it. And then the uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors came along in 2014 and 2015, and they revolutionized everything. So uh, they, uh, they've had a greater impact uh, than almost any treatment that has come out since uh, this plan came out in the 1970s. Uh, because across a broad range of cancers, they will uh, work incredibly well in 10 to 15% of patients. But the, the interesting thing is that uh, they're highly effective in 10 or 15% of patients, and it's like they behave like placebo when the other uh, uh, 85 to 90%, and we still cannot really figure out for sure wow. who they're going to work in. Uh, so that everybody gets treated, and, uh, and some people, they'll work spectacularly well, and other people, they, they will not work at all. That, that's interesting, and I, and I laugh because I'm also, I also teach with McGill, and sometimes you say something and you wonder, <laughs> when am I going to be wrong? <laughs> How many years from now is this going to be complete nonsense? Uh, but it, it happens. Uh, speaking of that, I, I have a question about prostate cancer because it's something I read and I just... So is it true that most men will end up getting prostate cancer, whether it's the indolent or not, by the time they're dead? Is, is, that, well, is that true? Yeah, the autopsy studies show that uh, right. if you uh, if a 30-year-old dies in a car accident and you take out his prostate and look at it under a microscope, uh, at 10 or 20 or 30 percent of them will have uh, areas of prostate cancer. So back uh, what I learned early on was it's, uh, it's uh, 40 percent of 40 year olds, 50 percent of 50 year olds, 60 percent of 60 year olds and 90 percent of 90 year olds. That uh, if you take the prostate out and, uh, and cut it up and look at it, you'll find areas of prostate cancer. But many of them are indolent and right. uh, many of them will never cause any harm. So far more people die with or with prostate cancer than die of prostate cancer. So it's still a very important cause of uh, cancer death in men, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of them, uh, a lot of prostate cancers uh, are just uh, do not cause major harm. So this is why screening for prostate cancer becomes so tricky, uh, 
because you may find it, but then what should you do about it? Uh, should you actually treat it or just observe? And this is the, uh, the big dilemma. So that uh, uh, we hope that over time, uh, that uh, different types of molecular testing will tell us more about who is really going to run into problems and who needs the aggressive uh, uh, treatments for it and who you can just wait and uh, and watch and uh, just keep an eye on it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I know I know when I talk to my patients about prostate screening, I, I do go through that talk with them and I'm glad I'm glad I was right. But yeah. but yeah, that's that's always a tricky part because even if, the thing is, even if they have a low-risk cancer, it causes so much anxiety. Yeah, that's right. right. So, so I, I point out in the book that, uh, like, I'm low risk of prostate cancer because I've no, got no family history. But my wife insisted I get uh, my PSA tested, so I keep on getting it tested, and that's fine as long as it's normal. But I'll, I'll have then I'll have a major conundrum. And if it starts rising, then what do I do about it? Do I then stop doing it and, avoid, and uh, not do anything, uh, or do I go and have a biopsy because uh, it's uh, there's uh, just the proportion of false positives uh, with PSA screening that. Uh, uh, where it's not going to cause any real harm over time. But sometimes it does. And there's some people that uh, yeah. PSA is high and it's good that it's found. But uh, but the, uh, the the real dilemma is uh, who should you screen? So uh, what the point I try to make in the book for no matter whether it's for breast cancer or colon cancer uh, or lung cancer or prostate cancer, uh, it's good to screen high-risk people uh, because then the if you find something, there's a higher probability that uh, it will be something important. If you screen a bunch of low-risk people and you find something, there'll be a very high possibility there'll be a false positive, and then you'll have created anxiety and a bunch more uh, biopsies and tests and things like that. Uh, so, uh, so in the book, I sort of imply that uh, I don't think that uh, patients in their 40s uh, should undergo mammography. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the the leader of our breast cancer screening program here, uh, she was um, uh, quite uh, quite uh, at odds with me on that, mm -hmm. and uh, she said, well. Even if there's a high rate of false positives, and that most people most people are negative, uh, that you'll still uh, prevent uh, a lot of cancer deaths if you screen. Uh, you'll have a whole bunch of people that uh, look positive but weren't, uh, and you'll have a whole bunch of people who had nothing but still got screened, uh, but you will uh, reduce a, a number of deaths. Uh, so it's one of the interesting debates in uh, in screening is who all should be uh, who all should be screened. I think it's important. I remember I, I we had to take a course in statistics. Back in medical school, and we had to talk about pretest probability, and I, I had my my eyes were going to the back of my head because I thought, why is this relevant? But it's so relevant because you're so right. If your pretest probability is low, then the false positive rate is much higher. Um, and for prostate cancer, is it's exactly that. Actually, breast cancer too. It's really important. I'm glad you mentioned it, and I'm glad you talk about it for both patients and help both patients actually, because patients sometimes explaining that idea of pretest and false positive is hard. But I think the book does a great job. And also, I, I love the fact you mentioned the relative risk reduction and the absolute risk reduction of screening. Because when you actually look at the numbers, the absolutely like, oh, 0 0.1 and 0 0.2. Okay. That, that was excellent. I really, that to me, it was a very, such a powerful chapter. I do want to end up uh, with an article that I read. I wanted to get your opinion on this. Um, this, was, this was published by the Department of Medicine. Journal in Canada back in 2021, I believe. And they were looking at the impact of COVID-19 on organized cancer screening and follow-up. This is from the abstract, which really made me worried. But again, is it hype or is it something to worry about? They're talking about Ontario specifically. Provincial health databases were used to identify 
age-eligible individuals who participated in one of or more Ontario's breast, cervical, colorectal, and lung cancer screening programs between 2019 and 2020. Ontario screening programs delivered 41% fewer screening tests in 2020 than in 2019. And volumes for most programs remained more than 20% below historical levels by the end of 2020. I have I had no update to what happened in 2021. My question to you is, how scary is this? And like, where does this lead? Yeah, so so that there, there is no question uh, in my mind that COVID is going to be um, um, associated with a bump in the cancer death rate, uh, both because of the screening uh, but uh, uh, every bit as bad, or perhaps even worse, delays in surgery. Uh, right. So that we keep on seeing patients that uh, have surgery delayed uh, because there are not enough nurses uh, to, uh, or anesthetists or whatever because of, uh, of the impact of COVID. Uh, this to me is a major concern because uh, one of the things I, I talk about uh, in, in the book again is uh, uh, just the, the impact of, uh, of wait times. And uh, again, uh, for every week of delay in, uh, in uh, initiating treatment of cancer, uh, a certain proportion of patients are going to die uh, just because of that. Wow. So if wow. it's an internal cancer, if it's, if it's a stage one ER positive breast cancer, uh, delays are probably not, not at all that important. Uh, if it's uh, somewhat more aggressive, uh, then for every uh, bit of delay that you've got in initiating treatment, uh, there, will be, uh, there will be potential consequences. Many patients will still be cured who are going to be cured, uh, but some won't. And, and, and one big problem is that if somebody uh, is not cured, if they undergo surgery and then they, they have recurrence, would that have also uh, happened if they'd had their surgery earlier? And there will be no way of saying that one way or the other. And this is one of the problems is that uh, you can't go into a corner and say, look what happened to the patient because they didn't uh, get tra treatment uh, early because it might have happened anyway that they wouldn't have been cured. Uh, but uh, we, but uh, it is anticipated uh, that uh, death rates from cancer over the next uh, uh, few years uh, are going to be higher uh, because of delays in screening, but also delays in treatment of, uh, of established cancers. Maybe that was the, the bad note to end on, but I was just curious about your about your perspective, and I really appreciate it. Though I I want I really want to thank you for coming on to, on today. This was great. I have so many questions, but but it, it's time to end the podcast. And I do want to tell our listeners that this book is amazing. I think it's very powerful. I think it's well written. I, I It is on Amazon, I believe. And you're selling it off the website as well, correct? That's right. So that uh, it can be ordered uh, online from uh, from Amazon, uh, Amazon Books, or from my website, uh, whycancerstillsucks.com. And, and I'll have those I'll have those links. I have those links on on. Uh, on the email and on the website. Thank you so much for your time. This was really, really illuminating. And thank you for writing this book. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Very much appreciate that. Mm -hmm.